We are back and you are listening to Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And this is hour two of the show. This is the hour where we go behind the headlines and dig a little deeper. Today, we're talking about efforts to eviscerate Black history, uh, basically prevent it from being taught in schools and universities, and also how the, the word and terms uh, around racism and, and racist are, are being manipulated and distorted as well. And joining me in this hour is Dr. Dante King. He's a professor at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science and the author of a new book called The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. Also joining me in this hour is Dr. Minna Pratt. She's the Vice President for Strategic Affairs and Diversity and a professor of education at Virginia Tech. Thank you so much, Dr. Pratt and Dr. King, for joining me. I want to start with you, uh, Dr. King. You've written a whole book about uh, the revolt against critical race theory. Uh, Tell us, you know, what started this revolt and uh, who's winning in this war to eviscerate the teaching of accurate Black history in our schools? So thank you very much for having me. I'm really grateful and glad to be here. Um, So I would say that first, you know, when we think about the history of this country and we talk about Black history, there can never be a discussion about Black history without white history. And so understanding that all of the trials, the oppression, the continued Uh, marginalization that Black people have faced in this country, that whites have been responsible for it. Um, Anytime we begin to uncover um, all of the ways that Black people were oppressed, we also have to look at the ways that white people were able to advance themselves using virtually every institution in this country. Um, And so you can see, for example, laws and policies that emerged Um, as well as uh, court decisions that emerged during the early 20th century, such as Corrigan v. Buckley, um, which enabled legalized uh, restrictions on uh, the homes that Black people could purchase in this country. Um, Developers were were funded and provided the uh, ability to deed properties exclusively all white, Um, These properties were of higher quality. Uh, We see the same in Euclid v. Ambler, a decision that same year, which uh, provided that cities and locales could zone by race. And so when we evaluate Black history, we are taking to task um, a group of people called white people. Um, And one of the things that Dr. Bobby Wright talks about uh, when it comes to the uh, racial personality, uh, some of the writings that he produced in the 1970s, were that white people are psychopathic when it comes to black people. Um, And one of the things that we see with white people um, is a narcissistic personality disorder, uh, which undergirds their entire culture. Um, And they also like to project a lot of their um, insecurities and a lot of their perversions about uh, who they believe black people to be. Um, And so all of these things are encompassed in the movement that we see today with the evisceration of uh, education in our uh, country. Uh, Dr. Pratt, is there anything unique about this moment that we live in that is causing this concerted effort, this attack? We know there have been efforts throughout history to uh, eliminate uh, Black history and to rewrite America's you know, origin story coming out of the Civil War. 
you know, there were efforts to do that. So it's this isn't new, but is there anything unique about this time period versus some of the other time periods uh, when these efforts have been uh, undertaken? Yeah, so I want to thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm honored to be here. Um, I, I see myself as a scholar of the law. I have a law degree and also a PhD in sociology. So I- You got five <laughs> degrees. You got a lot of degrees. I looked you up. <laughs> so I spend time thinking about society and social systems and social structures and legal systems and legal structures. And I think that this particular moment the energy around the attempt to eviscerate race, racism, black history is rooted in the changing demographics of America mm. and recognizing that as a country of immigrants, but many immigrants of color, not, not just sort of the traditional white European immigrants, but now we're having immigrants from all over the world. And the changing demographics of America are creating a sense of fear a fear that access to resources, access to power, access to opportunities is being compromised by the changing demographic. And so in order to mitigate that perception of a loss of power, I think the attempt has been to impact the education system. And so lessening the ability to understand the impact of slavery, for example, and the ongoing legacy of the impact of slaves, not only slavery, but the segregation, reconstruction, the, the whole history of the Black experience in America, but not just the Black experience. I think it's important to understand that other populations, Asian community, Latinx community, Native community, have all experienced particularly harsh experiences in America. Oh, and so this, Dr. Let, me, let me say for a second, Dr. Pratt, even if you eliminate the history of African-Americans and other marginalized people, that won't change the, the changing of America, the, the, the browning of America. That's not going to, to halt it, stop it, or in any way arrest it. That process that you know has been put in place is going to continue. So help us understand how eliminating black history courses in schools, how does that impact at all the browning of the country? Well, I think it impacts it because it's attempt to disempower individuals who could become empowered. So mm. if you don't know and understand your history and you don't learn about it, and many of us weren't learning about it even before this recent movement. I mean, I didn't learn about it in school. I didn't learn about it until I went to college. But if you erase the opportunity to learn in traditional environments, you are lessening the ability and the impact and the opportunity for people to engage in social movements and social justice to ask and demand access to those rights. So when I think about what has changed in American society, what has led to change, it's been student protests, largely in colleges and universities from the 50s, the 60s to the 2000s. So every time students largely in universities have engaged in social justice protests, it has led to significant change. And if you eliminate the opportunity for individuals to understand the impact of race in America, you're lessening, perhaps, perhaps there's a thought that you're lessening right. the opportunity for them to engage in, in activism. And so are you saying if I eliminate your opportunities, as you say, in these traditional settings, public schools, colleges, and universities to learn 
your history, when the country does become majority minority, that majority won't have the, the same power. They won't feel as empowered. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think there's an impact on your sense. I, I mean, the laws that are being passed are definitely impacting access to knowledge. And it does, it's knowledge in the traditional sense. I mean, I want to underscore that, for example, during the civil rights movement, we had freedom schools. So there was still knowledge happening. It wasn't in the traditional environment in, pu in public school settings, but that knowledge was still being dispensed. So you can't completely eliminate access to knowledge. It's just harder to get it. And I think when you have an amazing text like the 1619 Project and you ban it from the attempt, which was to create a large comprehensive access to knowledge about the experiences of America, American history, and you ban it from public schools, that's a significant impact on a generation of students. And so, uh, all right, Dr. King, so Dr. Pratt said a lot of these movements happened on college campuses. In states like Florida and uh, Texas and other states where you know, any uh, mention of diversity, equity, and inclusion are, are being banned by legislation, what's going to happen on these college campuses if these students can't even talk about certain topics, if they don't have access to professionals who are there uh, to help them understand you know, some of this important history of America, what happens on those campuses? So I, I think we need to take a step back for just a second, because what we are experiencing right now is reflective and very emblematic uh, and symbolic of what was experienced in this country uh, starting in the 1870s, when white people began to organize and use the law to eviscerate the rights of Black people during that period. I think what we miss many times is that, you know, once Black people gained citizenship, there was a lot of hope and there was a lot of conversation and talk about we, that we were going to have a Black president, um, that Black people were would be able to participate and enforce their rights. And we see uh, an emergence of white people being very vengeful and very upset about this new group, group of people who had gained rights uh, based on their citizenship and, you know, fought to overturn those rights. And so there was the Supreme Court decision, starting with the slaughterhouse cases that uh, began to really cut into the enforcement of rights that Black people had gained. We also see the overturning of the Force Acts of 1870, 1871 uh, by the Supreme Court in two rulings, Crookshank the United uh, Crookshank um, in 1876 and United States v. Harris in 1883. Both of those rulings essentially allowed for white people to go abroad and uh, murder and, and kill and lynch black people all across this country. I think to not understand that this country was founded as a white country and that white people created these institutions and can choose to use them at any moment based on their political standing um, to change and manipulate the laws, then we we approach this topic um, in a very in a manner that I believe is very naive. And I want to just share a quote uh, by Dr. Amos Wilson uh, for, in his book, The Falsification of African Consciousness. He says there are so many of us who believe that fair housing laws, 
civil rights laws, voting laws, and so forth guarantee our freedom. That is an illusion. What a flight into fantasy. Laws are no stronger than their enforcers. The same people who pass those laws are the same people who are responsible for enforcing them. If the people who enforce the laws no longer decide to do so, the laws are of no value and have no power. Ultimately then, Fairness rests not in laws, but in the activities of people and the attitudes and consciousness of people. Therefore, if the people who are responsible for enforcing those laws change their attitudes, then the treatment of those people whose freedom is protected by those so-called laws is changed as well. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because there is a denial of, of what you just articulated, Dr. King, uh, that is evidenced by some of our leaders on a daily basis. Uh, the quote I read from the person who is third in the Republican uh, you know, campaign for president, Vivek Ramaswamy, who happens to be Indian, uh, he says he believes racism in America is manufactured. Uh, and you just said racism is embedded in the institutions of this country. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about this notion that somehow people like uh, Congresswoman uh, Presley and others are manufacturing racism. Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and in this hour, we are talking about Black history, race, and racism with Dr. Dante King and Dr. Minna Pratt. All right, Dr. Pratt, we are seeing uh, lots of leaders on the big stage, big platform, call folks racist, like Donald Trump calling Alvin Bragg, uh, calling Fonnie Willis, calling Tish James a racist, uh, seeing uh, folks like Vivek Ramaswamy comparing uh, Congresswoman Presley to a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and making statements like racism is manufactured. Tell us what's happening uh, on the right with these Republicans. What are they doing uh, around the issue of race? I don't know what they're exactly doing around the issue of race, but I can say when I think about what racism is, I, I often think about racism as being a system and a structure that allows people of a particular race to impose their will through policies, through laws, through systems and structures on others. And so I'm particularly, I was particularly impressed in the recent Supreme Court decision on um, affirmative action in education on Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's dissent. In that dissent, I think she did a marvelous job of tracing through the history of racism, of government, state, laws, federal policies that specifically and disproportionately were designed to advance one race at a cost and benefit and sacrifice of another race, particularly African Americans. Mm -hmm. And so I think understanding racism as a almost built-in system and structure of power that can be implemented. It's, it's, in, it's designed in such a way that it it's almost operates without someone needing to do it. It's, it's so embedded and ingrained as a system and structure 
So I think in that recognition and that perspective for me allows me to understand that when different folks talk about who is racist and what racism is, if it's not contextualized as understanding it as a system of oppression, I think that's where the challenge is for me. So under that definition you just gave of racism, let's talk about racist. Uh, the adjective, call you know, someone who is identified as a racist. What is happening when a, you know, I, I was going to say billionaire, but Tish James said that Donald Trump inflated his uh, resources and revenue and worth by so many billions of dollars. I don't even know if it's correct to call him a billionaire, but let's just call him a powerful white man like Donald Trump, calls these three black prosecutors racist. What is happening there and why are people buying into that? And it's like flipping the concept that you just defined on its head. Well, I, I think that's been sort of a tactic of a lot of the current movement around. I don't think it was just what race, who's racist and who isn't. I think it actually started when we started flipping what critical race theory was on its head because I was a critical race theory scholar. I consider myself a scholar. My first book was on critical race feminism and education. And I remember being perplexed when all of a sudden it's like, we're allowed, we're banning critical race in schools. I'm like, it's not taught in schools, it's a legal theory. So I think there's been a movement to appropriate ideas and ideologies and concepts from social justice movements on behalf of marginalized com communities to the majority culture. And I think this is just part of a continuing trend to, to along that continuum. And so help us, uh, Dr. King, connect the two. So the movement to eviscerate the teaching of Black history with, as Dr. Pratt just said, the appropriation of concepts in the social justice movement, be, these concepts being appropriated by the majority culture. So one of the things, and I, I want to respond to that that other comment too about racism and then racist. I think one of the things that we fail to bring together or connect is that as this country is being built as a white country, per the Naturalization Act of 1790, and even prior to that, um, there is a psychology developing within white culture that esteem that provides that they are superior to everyone, no matter um, who emerges in this country uh, post the, the founding of the country. Um, I say this to say that we don't interrogate that psychology. Um, and we also don't interrogate the anti-Black or origins and orientations that are being established in this country through the colonial period into the formation of the United States that gave white people the right to legally rape Black women to use their children as sexual subjects, whether it be young boys that, that plantation owners sodomized or young girls that were uh, prostituted um, by their uh, owners and others uh, in society. These were legally manufactured rights. And so when we hear someone like Vivek Ramaswamy say that racism was manufactured, it absolutely has been, but by white people. Um, I think the other thing that we need to name is that um, in this whole 
um, context of a society that has been built upon race, the two markers, we often focus on white supremacy, white supremacy culture, but the other marker is an anti-Black orientation that everyone in this society benefits from. And Dr. Claire Jean Kim, in a recent book that she released entitled um, Asian Americans Living in an Anti-Black Society or an Anti-Black World, she described it this way, that white supremacy holds up white people and it presses down every not white person, but anti-blackness presses down every black person and lifts up every not black person. And so Cheryl Harris in her work in the early nineties around whiteness as property in this culture, in American society, whiteness is the most valuable property that a human being can have. And I think we need to really give a lot more attention to these variables then we would understand and have a proper context for where we are in this moment. So help us understand with that backdrop, when you hear again, a powerful white man like Donald Trump and a billionaire tech entrepreneur like Vivek Ramaswamy use the terms race, racism, racist, what is happening there? And what, what do people need to understand? Because there is this whole victim culture that has, uh, you know, emerged and that victim culture say, whenever you do anything that they don't like and the, you know, they can, you're now a racist. So Donald Trump gets prosecuted by black women, two black women, one black man, they're racist. He gets prosecuted by a white man, Jack Smith. Jack is a lot of things, but Jack isn't a racist. What is that? And so I'm going to refer back to that quote I shared earlier. I'm going to read a little bit more of it, though. Dr. Bobby Wright says, in their relationship with the Black race, whites are psychopaths and their behavior represents an underlying biologically transmitted proclivity with roots deep in their evolutionary history. The psychopath is an individual who is constantly in conflict with other persons or groups. He is unable to experience guilt, is completely selfish and callous, and has a total disregard for the rights of others. One of the best methods that can be used to measure the psychopathic traits of the white race is observing and analyzing their universal overt behaviors and attitudes towards Blacks. And so when we hear these individuals who are functioning in a total distorted uh, reality, and they are asserting very perverted um, narratives, we cannot accept or embrace or even look at these things as they're, as some sort that we're dealing with some sort of rational type people. They're just not operating it within a rational or reason context or manner. And so when we see this, we need to understand that narcissism, arrogance, a lack of empathy, um, the you know need to project uh, falsehoods, all of these things are emblematic of psychopathy. Um, and, and we really need to study white people. One of the things that I'm concerned with is really having a diagnosis for whiteness and anti-Blackness, because it is very clear that we've normalized some things that should never be looked upon as normal or a usuality. And, really and, that's, what, and that's really what I'm trying to get at. By, and I've asked this question now like three or four times, and, and Dr. Pratt, lawyer Pratt, you understand what I'm doing. <laughs> Are we normalizing this notion that 
anybody is a racist that does something that I don't like. Because that's what Donald, when he calls these three black people a racist, what is the basis of that? And does that become normalized now that everybody, anybody's a racist? You're a racist if, you know, you, you drive your car in front of mine and steal my parking spot. You know, are, are we diluting and, and, and undermining the potency of the term to the point where it means nothing and it, it has, you know, no value in our society? That's what I want to tackle when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Pratt, what I'm getting at is, you know, we don't know if someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, he's a Yale graduate, so we, we can probably make some assumptions that he was taught something about black history. But when folks like Donald Trump and him use these terms, are we to assume they don't know the, the history, uh, you know, the, the institutionalized racism that has happened in this country because of the policies that both you and Dr. King have talked about today? Or, you know, are they purposely distorting the use of those terms and the reason I, I think this is so important because I don't see a lot of people pushing back on the use of the terms. And I worry that they will become normalized the way they are using them and that they will lose the meaning that I think of when I think of someone who is a racist or racism. So that, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at. What, what is happening here and what should we be doing uh, to push back on, on how these terms are being appropriated and used? No, I, I think that's a very valid point. And I often think about where are the voices of, of opposition? Where are the other voices? Who's speaking out? And I'm an active blogger and I write a blog post at menoprat.com. And my one of my recent blog posts is called, You Say You Want to Be an Ally, But Do You Really? <laughs> and it's sort of this question about what is allyship and the requirement of allyship of actually speaking out, of challenging the norm of being willing to maybe stand alone sometimes. So it's not just accepting what it is, but this active advocacy and activism. And so I think, yes, I think it's important for shows like this, for other folks, for scholars and higher ed and social media and other places to continue to interrogate, well, what is happening here? Why is this now an appropriate definition? Is it an appropriate definition? So I think asking and raising the question is, is critically important so that we don't succumb to, oh, anyone can be a racist or racism affects everyone without understanding the whole system and structure that embodies racism. And so with that, what should we say when Donald Trump calls those three lawyers, Black lawyers, racist? Because what is he saying? when he does it to them, but he doesn't do it to Jack Smith. Well, I think we, that, oh. go, go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. King. Well, he's, he's using that uh, as a political tool to isolate those Black women because he knows that that will gen up uh, the type of hateful energy that is very, uh, very stark or very present uh, amongst uh, his base and the people that support him. Um, so I don't think that he's doing it um, because for any other purpose or reason. But, but wait, Dr. Him. King, no, he wants his base to hate Jack Smith, too. No doubt about it. He wants his base to hate anybody that's, you know, coming after him criminally, who's charged, who's filed charges against him. So he makes the same. He doesn't make the same, but he makes pejorative uh, statements against and about Jack Smith. But he specifically uses racist 
with the three black people. And I still don't think we've said, we told the audience, why is it? And what is it that someone like him, who's smart and strategic and manipulative, what is he trying to do? Well, like I said, I think there is a special type of hatred for Black people in this country. And I think that he is trying to rile up people because he knows by focusing on those Black women, he can get a lot of support. It's different than the comments that he's making about Jack Smith, who is a white male, um, and, and the way that that is dealt with um, amongst uh, and within the, the group of uh, the culture of white people in this country. I think that there is a special, um, deeply rooted, uh, vitriolic uh, sentiment for, for Black people, and especially for these Black women who were never supposed to be in these positions by, by his account, um, who, and who were never supposed to be holding him accountable. Um, I think that deep down, uh, he is really perturbed and, and deeply disturbed by this. Right. But Dr. Pratt, what he is saying is that anybody is a racist that does something that you don't like, or anyone is a racist that, in his case, he, he's being singled out because he's leading the Republican Party or because he's popular. So what does that do to the word racist and our efforts in this country to combat racism if anybody is a racist that, you know, doesn't choose, you know, does something that you don't like. Well, I think it would require that we all buy into that definition. And I think there are many people who don't buy into it. And I actually think what's also interesting that we often don't talk about when we're just talking about racism and is the intersection of race and gender. I mean, they're black women. So I think even though we're using the word race and racist, I can't imagine that the intersection of gender and that and their identities is also not relevant. But I think to the extent, again, that we continue to challenge what exactly is a racist, what is racism, who's able to- Well, let me ask you this. Somebody may say, can is there anything that Tish James, Fonnie Willis, or Alvin Bragg could do towards Donald Trump that could ever be racist? No, not at all, because it diminishes the fact that racism is established based on a system or systems that have been developed by specific people or a specific group um, and that they have perpetuated group power based on their control and ability to enforce that those systems um, and culture onto other people. And so there's never been a time in this history where black women have been in control of these systems. We didn't develop them. We've never had the universal control or jurisdiction over others to enforce. Does that change though? The fact that they are at the head of these organizations and they are elected officials. So, you know, at some level they do have control. They have the control to determine who gets prosecuted or not. They not didn't develop the system. Not collectively across the board. And that's, that is um, not, that is not the case when we look at, um, again, the entirety of this situation when we talk about the definition of racism. They have power, they have achieved individual power, but they are not um, in any position at all and never have been where they have controlled collectively these systems and can manipulate and change the systems anytime they see fit. Okay, so Dr. Uh, Pratt, I've not heard, and I don't hear everything, so this is just my little sample size, but I've not heard anyone say 
when Donald Trump calls these three black prosecutors racist, I have not heard anyone say it's impossible for them to be racist towards Donald Trump. Why are we hearing that? Well, I, That's what I, Dr. King just said. He said it's impossible. It's not possible. I, I actually think we're not hearing as much as I think we should be hearing about everything that's happening in terms of the issues of, of teaching Black history, of the state laws that are impacting higher education, of corporations who I thought might have been a stronger voice in some ways after the Supreme Court decision. I think there's a lot of fear about even speaking out, which is which is concerning because I think it is in the power of our voices, our, of leveraging our ideas and ideologies that we create a different environment. And if people are increasingly apprehensive or silent or speaking out in more clandestine ways and not openly, I think that creates a challenge for us. But I don't believe that it's a reflection of folks agreeing with what's out there. But more I, 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 I believe that, Dr. Pratt. I think people are confused. I think the way Donald Trump and people like Vivek Ramaswamy use the media and their platforms is they create a lot of chaos, Dr. King, and a lot of confusion. So there are probably people at home listening to them say that and say, oh, yeah, they are racist because they are, you know, they're going after Donald Trump. You know, he did nothing wrong. We know people believe that. So they are creating some confusion, I think, about what racism is and how we can be used. We're running out of time, but, but give me a response to that, Dr. King, real quickly. So Dr. Asa Hilliard defined racism this way. Racism is a system that encompasses economic, political, social, cultural structures, actions, and beliefs that institutionalize and perpetuate an unequal distribution of privileges, resources, and power between white people and people of color. This system is historic, normalized, take it for granted, deeply embedded, and works for the benefit of whites and the disadvantage of people of color. <laughs> All right, we've got to leave it there. This is a big conversation, and I, I'm good. still, I, I feel like we got to keep asking, as you said, Dr. Pratt, these really important questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Dante King. His book is The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. And thank you so much, Dr. Minna Pratt. Uh, both of you have helped us on this very important topic, enlighten us on this very complex topic. And I'd love to have you both back to continue this discussion. 